faith alone. What the Reformation argued about, what the fight was, it's kind of about money, actually. Stewardship. Does the church need a bigger building? That was really what it was about. Dr. Luther, 95 Thesis, all this stuff. All the stuff we, we make lions out of, we theorize uh, the, the history of the Lutheranism. What it was about was who do you trust and why? And the argument from Dr. Luther is, I'm pretty sure the Bible's more trustworthy than any other dude. And the argument from the Pope is, nope, I'm more trustworthy. And to this day, this remains a fact. In fact, if you follow Roman Catholic politics, you'll see they just had quite the little event, uh, five, they call them dubia, that were brought to the Pope, which is basically saying, hey, dude, you said some stuff we're not so sure. And uh, as you know, Pope Francis, perhaps you don't know, he, he likes to kind of wiggle and dance and like say, well, I, I don't just, I don't know, I don't judge. You know, he kind of does that thing. But on almost every single one of these, he's like, yep, kind of. Yep, for sure. Later. Things like, well, you know, blessing same-sex unions in the Catholic Church. Things like that. That's not what the fight is about. The fight's about who do you listen to? Who do you trust? And the rallying cry of the Reformation, sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura, right? We trust the grace of the God of the Bible, who we know is Jesus now. So, of course, Christ alone is the only real sola, the only only, is Jesus only. Yeah. But trust is how we receive Jesus. He comes and he speaks, and we either go, yep, or nope. That's it. Those are our options. Yep or no. Amen or did you really say that? Like those are our options with Jesus. And we do it. And our flesh does it all the time, especially when we're like, oh, did he really say that? Because I want this. Right? Then we're very willing to question the spirit of the scriptures. In the last hundred years, what's been questioned? Man and woman? Yes, for sure. Can I point to something like ordination and whether you have male pastors or male and female pastors. This is not a matter of even man and woman. It's a matter of who do you trust? Who do you trust? And today, St. Paul Lutheran Church, I want you to trust Jesus again <laughs> and more than ever before, because you may know then he has chosen you to be more than a conqueror in this age of destruction. That's what Christianity is. No Christians don't get to be not chosen, right? Like, or don't, yeah, right. I think that made sense. Christians don't get to walk around and go, I'm not sure if I'm chosen. Like, that's not an option for you. To be Christian, christened, right? Put water on you to make you a Christian, christened. Uh, you are chosen. You are chosen. And so you get to walk the rest of your life in the certainty of knowing, trusting that you were chosen. It's more than knowing, really. And what are you chosen for? Grace. To know that every single time it feels like it's fallen apart, in fact, the road is rising to meet you and God has prepared for you a bountiful banquet you can't even imagine yet. If only you'll trust him again, right? So it goes back to trust, gives you the grace. Right? And that pushes you back into the scriptures which preach all of this eternally so that the men of this age cannot take it away from you. Which they keep trying to do, of course, you know. 
Yes, they want to flood the air with every message except for he is risen. Ah. Hallelujah, good for you. All right, so uh, Isaiah chapter 50 is going to be on uh, page 610, uh, 611 of your pew Bible. That'll be the ESV. I'm going to work a little bit from the uh, New King James here with you this morning, but they should overlap together. And what I want to establish here in the promises of Isaiah is how confident you can be in being chosen by God as a Christian. Now, this whole section is really about Jesus. It is. It's about the suffering servant of the Most High God. And if you're a Christian, you just you must believe. Look at the crucifix. Look at the crown on his head. Look at the nails in his hands. There is the suffering servant of the Most High God, crowned and anointed king of the universe, prophesied by Isaiah right here. It's also about Cyrus, king of Persia, because it says that at the start, and we know Cyrus, king of Persia, didn't save the world, but he did put the temple back together, which led to Jesus being crucified, right? So it's part of how God leads us there is he tells the same story in utero, in baby form, right? And then the same story grows into the adult form in Jesus, all right? I think that makes sense. So Isaiah 50 uh, is uh, from a time in which God is foretelling his salvation through Cyrus and Jesus together. Jesus fulfills this, and then Paul, in his letters and in the book of Acts, will insist that therefore it's about him. He'll quote this section. Not only is it about him, but it's about us. This is the most important thing about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus, which means the whole Bible is about you because you're inside Jesus now. And Jesus is inside of you now. God lives inside of you. Not all people. Don't get me wrong. This is not the inner light. Nobody's got an inner light. You have an inner darkness is what you got. But Jesus is a light that shines into you and does not submit to the darkness there. And you may know that. With confidence, you are set apart. You are different than the rest of the world. It's why you feel guilt the way that you do, and they don't. Yeah? So you have God inside of you, and God inside of you, the Holy Spirit, feeds himself by feeding you on his own words. Yeah? And that little mystery, that beautiful thing, is what then you can do with a section like this. Isaiah 50, you can take it, and you can go and say, it's about me. It's about me, the Christian, all the time. That doesn't mean you get to get rid of the rest of the Bible. It means it goes with the rest of the Bible. But now let's see what you get to believe today, St. Paul. Here we go again. Starting with uh, chapter 50, um, verse 4, where it says, The Lord God has given, Lord Jesus, right, has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear the uh, to hear as the learned. It's very simple, uh, Christian. This means that God has given you the power to wake up and read the Bible. And when you do, you will be able to speak to others better in a way that encourages them usually. It's a promise, I tell you. It's a promise. Believe it. 
right? Uh, verse five and six, for the Lord Jesus has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Stop wondering if you're a believer or not. I say this to the internet as much as St. Paul. There's a lot of people out there that live in Christian churches and they're not sure if they're believers. There's a lot of preaching that makes people question whether or not they're believers. But this verse here, when you read it out loud, promises you, God opened your ear. You're not rebellious. You didn't turn away. And you say, well, but, but how do I know that's true about me, pastor? Well, are you a Christian? I mean, you're here at church, right? So you're a Christian. So therefore, it's about you. God called to you and you didn't rebel the way other people do. Does that mean salvation rests upon your works? No, you dumb fool. Never would suggest such a thing. But do recognize that when you woke up, you actually woke up and didn't stay asleep. You have a different mind. You have a different spirit. You have been redeemed. You are regenerate. Believe it. Huh? So that you, like Jesus, are willing. And this You hear Jesus a lot here. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now you can imagine Jesus as he's being struck. Prophesy, son of God, right? They're saying that stuff to him. But this also is then who you get to become. A person who gently understands that the wrath of man doesn't fix everything. And so you're willing to turn the other cheek here and there, which doesn't mean get trampled on. It means absorb the fool's idiocy and get out of the way rather than dive into the fight with the fool. That'll just escalate, right? <laughs> you know, you want peace, don't you? Huh? So you know, the, the posture of charity is what this is about, and we're going to get there in two weeks. Trust, truth, and charity. Um, but here's where we get the Romans 8 language again in verse 7. Uh, for, I should say, where Romans 8 picks it up. For the Lord God, the Lord Jesus will help me. This is the part, verse 7, 8, and 9. I want you to highlight this. I want you to write this down. I want you to plaster this on your mirror. I want you to read this to yourself. I want you to believe this, that the Lord Jesus will help you. Therefore, you will not be disgraced. Therefore, you can set your face like a flint and know that you will not be ashamed because God is near to justify you. Who shall contend with you? And then he says, let us stand together because it's who shall contend with me. And you can hear the boast. This is just so beautiful. I'll start it again now. Um, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. I, as, a, as a guy who's learning jiu-jitsu, I, I'm, I'm learning the ropes of jiu-jitsu. I'm by no means a master. But um, there is this moment where, you know, someone goes like this to you, right? Can you see me doing it? Yeah, yeah. And it's, that's what this is. Only you're doing that to the devil, Actually, when you read this aloud and you believe it, God is near who justifies me. That's true in Jesus' name. Who shall contend with me? That's, that's calling to the devil. Um, let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Remember what we heard about the devil last week? He'll be dragged down to Sheol and all the kings of the earth are like, oh, are you like us? Are you under us now? Yeah. Let him come near me. Why? Verse 9, surely the Lord Jesus will help me. That's why. I'm not going to call the devil to fight him myself. That'd be stupid. But here, Isaiah says, what, what, what do I have to fear? I'm going to trample the scorpion. I might not even know I did it, but I'll, I'll crush him. I'll walk blindly through because God is my wisdom. Christ is my anchor. Jesus is the light. Yeah? Surely the Lord Jesus will help me. Who is he who will condemn? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. You know what we do too much of in America? All of us, we care way too much what everybody else thinks. Who will condemn me? They will all grow old like a garment. Every word that you care about so much this week, you won't remember next month. And yet we're driven and driven and driven by the words of others who we don't even know. 
much less can we trust. And certainly they're all trying to make a profit, right? How great a confidence to know you can walk into that and, and just know God's going to bring you daily bread. God's going to make your adversaries confounded in your presence when you speak wisdom. God will give you charity and encouragement to give it to others so you will find love and peace amongst those who you are around. Those are all these promises right here. Who shall condemn you for these things? And if they do, they will only be exposed as the idiot tyrants of the world, which on the last day will get their recompense, as you will certainly have yours, which is glory. Which is why I want to jump from this to the words of our Lord that we heard from John chapter 12. So if you'll dance with me over to John chapter 12, uh, in your pew Bible, if you want to look, it's in the bulletin too, some of it. A pew Bible is page 898. Remember, the bulletin's got the... King James, new King James, uh, and your pew Bible is ESV, so you can always compare those to each other. And that's sort of what's valuable about our studying it right now. If we're going to move to a different translation, the last thing I want to do is be like, well, pastor thinks so. Let's do it. That's dumb. That's dumb. It doesn't help anybody. Uh, well, what we, well, it could, I guess, over time, like 50 years from now, it matters if we stick to it. But I know we're more likely to stick to it if we all understand why we do it. And so this is the chance. Compare and contrast. Here it is. I'm going to be in one. You could have the other in front of you. And you can ask, not only what is pastor saying and is it what the Bible says? That's probably the first question you should always ask, right? Um, but, but also then, um, you know, does this translation or that translation seem funny to you? Does it smell weird, right? Uh, what are your questions about it? All right. So again, uh, back in John uh, chapter 12, where... Uh, let me find my spot where I want to really begin us. It's going to be uh, verse 20 of chapter 12. It's a little ways back before what we heard read. And it really says the context for what Jesus is going to go through on the basis of his trust. Okay, so find your way again uh, to John 12, verse uh, 20. And then, you know, let me reframe this again. We talked about this in the, uh, uh, the teaching before the reading, but for those listening online and, and studying it later, um, Jesus is a man, right? Like he's God for sure. Not going to doubt that a moment, but he's also a man, which means that he must have faith in God, or he would go to hell. He can't go to hell. He's also God. So he's a man who has not just faith, he's got the best faith anybody ever had. And in one sense, you could even say, but be careful with it, you could say Jesus, the man, is saved by faith. That's what the cross is. As he goes to death by faith alone, and then he rises from the dead by faith alone. He is saved by active faith in himself as the son of his father, who is the almighty God. So if you want to model for practicing faith, Jesus is, is the hero. He's the king. I mean, David's pretty cool, right? You know, Paul does amazing things. Jesus is the king. And, and we see it here in what happens next. I, I mentioned uh, in the little lesson before that we're in Holy Week. It's, it's not just Holy Week, but look at in your headings. Do you see in chapter 12, verse 9, what, what your heading maybe says, the plot to kill Lazarus? Things are getting dark for the followers of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem during Holy Week. If you can imagine the city swelling to three, four, five times its size in just a week and a half, 
and you're a crowd with the guy who everyone thinks is going to overthrow the government. Okay? And, and there's big crowds around you shouting about this. Some guys are stockpiling swords. So that's what's going on around this. And in the midst of this, verse 20 then tells us, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, meaning he had Greek tendencies, uh, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, I have always gone by this verse very swiftly in the past. Oh, cool. There were some Gentiles who were interested in Jesus, too. And I've even heard it preached about how Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew in turn told and uh, told uh, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And so I heard that whole verse, if you can stick with me for a 30-second tirade, that whole verse was preached as how we're supposed to do mission better. Because you see, um, Andrew told someone, and then someone else told someone, and then they all came to Jesus. And it was wonderful. And look at the Greeks that were brought to Jesus. But if you read the story, that's not what happens at all. Jesus kind of gets pissed off, actually. Um, it's it's uh, Why? Why would Jesus get mad that at this point where he's preaching to everybody and all these guys won't believe him, here's these Greeks, and they want to hear what he has to say. Now, the key to this is to understand that the Greeks are not Greeks in the text. They are Jews who speak Greek and look Greek and walk and talk Greek, but keep synagogue and Torah like the others in Alexandria do. And they come here for the feast. That is, it's Christmas time, so they go to church, but they really think the priests are wrong about everything. In fact, everything about the people who run Jerusalem has got it backwards. It should be more like Alexandria. But you're not in Alexandria. You're in Jerusalem because that you do believe that the temple is the only place to go. So what this really is at this moment is a political hook. This is Jesus. It looks dark. you got no friends. Oh, by the way, all of Egypt is with you. Now his answer makes more sense. Jesus answered them saying, verse 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What does that mean? Ride forth in battle? That's what the Greeks think. Yeah. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. There's a parable right there. It's like many other parables. It's not so different. Yeah. But the parable is explaining the word glory in Jesus' name. And glory does not mean riding forth in battle unless you intend to die. Because to Jesus, to glory is to die in trust in God. To die trusting God. Not to try to not die because you don't trust God, which is what most people do. Like every day, kind of, right? And Jesus is the power of man trusting in God in the face of death. And he says, in fact, that when that happens, when the seed goes into the ground, and you know this if you plant a flower, the seed doesn't come back by itself, but it produces many, 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 many more. The flower to boot. So he says, verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's talking about himself. Hey, Jesus, you got some Greek politicians here. They can keep you safe throughout the feast. We'll get stuff going on the other side. You won't have to deal with all these, these betrayers and all this stuff, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. No, I hate this life, actually. Like, I'm a man of sorrows. 
I can't wait to die in a sense. I'm not excited about how I'm going to die, <laughs> right? But, but in one way, no, this, this, is, this is why I came. Uh, he'll say that in a moment. If anyone serves me though, he says, you know, learn this lesson, let him follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. So, so what does it mean to follow him? Well, it certainly means to believe this mindset is better than the one they're selling me on TV. That is, at least it's that, right? That the way Jesus is looking at his impending death is better than Tylenol, all right? It's, it's better than any other thing you can put in your body to, to stave it off. And this way of looking at it is that when I die, I don't die. And everything I hate about my life, when I die, it becomes perfect now. Because that's who God is, Jesus says, to him as the eternal son who deserves it. And now he dies in our place so he can give it to you. Verse 26, uh, verse 27, but now you see the humanity come out again. Now my soul is troubled, right? There it is. You know, you remember Garden of Gethsemane, he's going he's gonna to pray, there's going to be blood. I really, I think of those old paintings, you've seen those old paintings of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there, he's kneeling, and there's the streaming light coming down. And you can tell that the angels are ministering to him, and, and everything's kind of like, he's got rosy cheeks. You know, everything's really, really paved and pretty, and there's not, there's not a drop of blood in the picture. Man of sorrows, my soul is troubled. He knows what's coming. And what shall I say, he says. What would I say? What would I say if I was about to get crucified? I know what I would say. I'd say, save me. I'd say, Jesus Christ, save me. And I want you to walk out today and say, that's the first step. Do it. Do that. This text is not here to teach you, don't say, save me. It's to show you that there's something even cooler than save me. And that is the purpose for which I came to the hour. Father, glorify your name. Which when you say to the Father, glorify your name, you know it means glorify me. Like the way he's going to glorify his name when you pray is in and on you. Which for Jesus meant getting crucified, actually. So he could save the world. You're not Jesus. You don't need to die to save anybody. Unless you're a cop or a soldier. Maybe a father or a mother sometimes. But generally, all you need to do is wake up, eat, care about your neighbors, and go to sleep. That's all you need to do. And in Jesus' name, he will glorify that. So that rather than needing to be saved from every single stumbling block that comes your way, you can begin to have that Romans 8 and Isaiah 50 mindset that even the stumbling block that puts you on your face bends you to look at the ground right in front of you where there's a golden nugget if you look at it. But if you get up and get mad about stumbling, of course, you can't see the gold. It's a mind set. It's a world view. It's trusting God. And we are set apart, St. Paul, as the people who have demonstrated that we trust in God. Again and again at this place, it's why you're here this morning. You are demonstrating, you are testifying that you trust in God. Otherwise, why on earth would you sit in these uncomfortable pews? I mean it. You're demonstrating that you trust in God. It's not a question if you're a Christian or not. You're here. Believe it and own it and now take it home and start putting it to work, kicking the butt of the devil in your life. Getting him out of your ear. Turning off his voice. 
shutting down his mind, and his mind is the mind of shame. So whereas talking about Christ, as I have through this entire time, has given you hope and confidence and a sense of peace, when the devil comes and the world comes, they bring a sense of shame. So let that be a measuring stick for you this week. How much are you feeling shame? You know you're listening to the wrong person if you're feeling shame. And maybe it's you you're listening to. That's my problem usually. And it really is. I have to stop and be like, Jonathan, shut up. Because I realize I'm shaming myself. But I also know that behind that is one evil foe named the devil. And the antidote is not for me to say, Jonathan, shut up. The actual antidote is Jesus Christ rebuked Jonathan so that Jesus Christ can preach to Jonathan that Jonathan's the son of God again. And Jonathan can walk, not ashamed, but aware and seeking Maybe hungry and certainly charitable, I hope. Yes. Romans 8, with just a touch of a moment left to let it close for us this morning. Uh, you can uh, look in your uh, uh, bulletin if you like. I don't have, do I have the page number? Let me look. I, no, I don't have the page number marked for you. Um, so I just want you to hear of the flow of this now, right? So I, I've, I've taught you about confidence. Right? But I can't give you confidence by talking about confidence. But if you've gotten confidence through this, it's because the text itself has just come into you and filled you. right? And so that's what I want to happen here again as you go on your way. We opened up with Isaiah and a passage that you can believe is true for you no matter what. Okay? And then we talked about Jesus and glory. And now we're going to go back to this is about true for you no matter what. Put a box around it. Highlight it. Memorize it. Love it. Sing it. Anything you can do to not forget Romans 8. Uh, and we're going to start uh, with the reading part of it uh, with verse 18. All right? 18. Uh, we just have four minutes here. Uh, try to take us through it gently uh, without haste. Uh, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be honored. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he 
might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through trust in Jesus. Now, whatever comes your way in this life, up, down, roller coaster, you can have good days, you can have bad days. The name of Jesus Christ, your God, is with you as power to rejoice in it all, to be content, to know the secret of that, that come what may, God means it for power in his name. And power in his name sometimes looks like weakness to the world. But to the wise who have learned how to see truth and charity are well worth putting your trust in. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.